Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. This week, we are doing something new. This episode is brought to you by our current partnership with the new festival going on in New York City called Rave Theater Festival. It opens on August 9th and runs for two and a half weeks. The producer of it is the award-winning producer Ken Davenport, which we have on the podcast. So stay tuned to hear more about the festival. Thanks! The brand new Rave Theater Festival is heating up the New York City theater scene this summer from August 9th to 25th, featuring 20 diverse new shows that will make you laugh, cry, take you back in time, and across the globe. From ferociously funny farces to timely historical dramas, tap dancing girls to immersive experiences, theater for young audiences to international productions from Australia, Ireland, and South Africa. Experience the festival and get tickets at ravetheaterfestival.com. That's ravetheaterfestival.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's podcast. Today, we have Ken Davenport. He is a Tony Award-winning producer of Broadway and Off-Broadway shows, including Once on This Island, which won a 2018 Tony for Best Musical Revival, Getting the Band Back Together, Chinglish and Allegiance, uh, Out in California, Deaf West production of Spring Awakening, and the current one that everyone seems to be talking about, The Play That Goes Wrong. He also has revolutionized marketing through new and diverse approaches, such as uh, you can tweet during some of his shows in specific seats. He has written a number of books. He's made a board game called Be a Broadway Star. He hosts a weekly podcast himself called The Producer's Perspective. And he writes newsletters on top of everything else. He also has a family, so he does have an outside life. (laughs) So welcome to the podcast, Ken. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, a real treat to be near on the other side of the microphone. So, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into theater? Uh, that's a very, it's a good question. You know, we, I think most of us are brought into the theater dragging, really not knowing exactly what we're getting into. And that was certainly my case. My parents uh, brought me to an audition when I was five years old for the local community theater. I'm a huge community theater supporter. Uh, and uh, once they got me in that building, I really never left. I took a little break from it when I was in high school and got too cool for it and thought I was going to play for the Boston Red Sox and the Boston Celtics, like I was going to be that kid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was going to be a lawyer like everyone else who grew up in the 80s and watched L.A. Law, uh, but then got rebit by the bug my senior year of high school when I did my high school musical and left law behind, thank God, and, now, uh, <laughs> and pursued a career in the theater, transferred to the Tisch School of the Arts, and began theater as an actor like so many of us do, uh, because that's all we really know. But once mm-hmm. I, I did an internship when I was in college on a Broadway production, uh, that changed my life, and it opened my eyes to all the other different roles that were available on a Broadway show for someone like me to do, and including many roles that my natural born talents were better suited for than performing. Uh, And I really just found this world behind the curtain that I was obsessed with and stage managed for a little while. I worked for an agent for a little while, company managed, general managed and worked my way up until I started producing about 15 years ago. That's amazing. Did you know 
I guess you didn't know, but was your goal once you got backstage to be a producer or did it just kind of naturally lead there and you weren't quite sure where it was going to go? You just followed it. Well, I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur since I was a little kid. I opened a candy shop in my father's cardiologist office. So, (laughs) yes, I was selling chocolate bars to heart patients. Good job. You know, I was always trying to figure out how to make money. I sold candy at school. Like I did all that stuff. Right. Uh, So I always had a bit of a business entrepreneurial mind. And but when I got into the theater, no, I didn't know that I wanted to be a producer. Um, I did what I, I really urge a lot of younger people to do when they just start in any business is that, you know, there's this old cliche, this Reagan era cliche of just say no when he had this war on drugs. And I think when it comes to career, it's a, you say, just say yes. Mm-hmm. And when I was in, in college, people would ask me to do something. And I'd say, OK, do you want to help cast my film? OK, do you want mm-hmm. to say, OK, do you want to be a production assistant on a Broadway show? I didn't even know what that meant. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And they were like, you're going to have to take a semester off from school. And I was like, OK, it's being on a Broadway show. I'll figure it out. I'll get internship credit. And so I just said yes to a lot of things for a while. And. As my mother helped me realize once when I was actually working for that agent and hated it, uh, she said, it's okay. With every job that you don't like, you get closer to the one that you do. Uh, so I, I, I think that the beginning of anyone's career is like taking the SATs. You spend a lot of time eliminating the wrong answers. so you can. <laughs> the That's, That's how we were talking at it. <laughs> Did you... Your parents took you to theater to audition when you were five. Were they in theater or they just were trying to give you something to do? Yeah, they they were involved with the local theater. And that's we know this now. There's been many a study that the, you know, the way to get increased involvement in the theater is for parents to bring their kids or to the theater uh, or to get them involved in the theater. That's where the tradition is handed down. And that's not just theater, by the way. That's everything from golf to opera. So, you know, it's like parents do and try to instill the values that they have or the things they love into their kids. Uh, so that's what they did. My parents were not coincidentally divorced when I was five, same time. And I think the theater was the one place that they could get along. Uh, and actually, that's my whole metaphor for theater now is it's, it's the place where up to 2000 people like on a single night can come no matter what their gender, race, sexuality, uh, where they're from, anything. And they can be united under one single message. And frankly, there's nothing there's nothing better than when 2,000 people of uh, such a diverse such a diverse group of people are all sharing that same experience and all loving. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, what my parents taught me when I was a kid. I I want to ask because you're the first person we've talked to who is a producer in anywhere in that realm at all. So before we even jump into the Rave Festival, which you are starting, what does it mean to be a producer? Yeah, that's a good well, question. <laughs> yeah, listen, I I got that same question. I get it. You know, I travel a lot. I talk to a lot of people about what I do all over the country. And people are like, oh, wow, you're a producer. That's so cool. What do you do? Yeah. Like, so <laughs> it's, it's a really good question. And actually about one of the most popular blog posts I, I've ever written, because um, I've been writing this blog now for like 11 years. And was from like a 13 year old kid who like emailed me and was like, she's probably, she's what, like now 23, probably this kid. Um, she said to me, like, I don't know what a producer does. And I was like, that's a great question. So I, I polled a bunch of my peers 
and ask them in one sentence to describe what they do. Uh, so you should, um, if you're interested in that blog, look it up. Yeah, definitely going to look it up. Uh, it's really pretty insightful. And my longer answer is a producer is like the CEO of any company or the founder of a startup, right? It's the same thing. It's not some mystical, magical type of position. It's just like business. If you have a new company, you need a product. I need a product too. I need a play or a musical. I need a place to sell that product, which is a theater. I need an advertising campaign. I need a management team, creative, etc. So it's just like any other business out there. My short answer these days is I get people in a room. That's what I do. So I get authors in a room. I get directors to meet with those authors. I get cast members in a room. And then eventually they'll create something. And then I get an audience in a room to share that experience. Um, but we do everything again that a, at a startup business owner would do. I raise capital. That's a big part of what we do. I design marketing campaigns. Uh, but there's nothing mystical about it again. It's just like running any business. It's so amazing to me that even being in the field as a stage manager for this many years to like talk to somebody else who's also in this field of creating art and not know what they do. <laughs> but yeah, we had... the, the, Listen, why I do... Why I love what I do is that no no day is the same. Like every yeah, single yes. day is different. I always say, "Oh, I'm going to do a I'm going to do a new Broadway show next year." Oh, that's great. Oh, that'll be fine. And you know, I've done so many now. It won't take up that much time, or it won't be that. It's always different. It's always <laughs> unique and always special. And right. That's, that's why I do it. Otherwise, I'd be bored. Yeah, I that's think that's why most of us do this. Yeah, I build sets and do tech stuff, but no two shows are the same. Like, even if I do Into the Woods for the fifth time, it's a different set, it's a different house, it's a different group of people. Yeah, and that's what makes it challenging and fresh. I couldn't do the same thing every single day. (laughs) Yeah, we'd get bored. (laughs) So how did you come up with the idea to start Rave Theater Festival? It's your inaugural year um and you're doing 23 new work shows in three weeks how how did this idea come about well you know it came about because i i tend to keep my eyes and ears open about things in the community i mean that and try to fill any need that i see so that's how the board game came about my wife came home one day from a party where she was hanging around with a bunch of theater kids and i was like what did you do and she was like oh we played apples to apples yep and i was like what is a bunch of 20 something theater fans doing playing apples to apples why aren't they playing a broadway game and i was like oh wait there is no broadway game. there is nothing and yeah that's where, what i really try to do is whenever i say that is to go that i'm gonna create one or i'm gonna do one um and that's i think you know what has led to the success that i've had so far is that i i, I try not to think how i just try to think just do that thing um and so we i literally googled how to create a board game and we built a board game and now that board game is it's called be a broadway star it's one of the top selling broadway gifts on amazon.com uh it's super fun it's been around for i think like eight years or something crazy uh and um it's great and the same thing happened with the festival so i work with a lot of emerging writers i get lots of scripts i we have a membership site of theater makers on the producer's perspective. And I just noticed this like this, like passion and almost desperation for more performance opportunities for them. 
Uh, and we have a mission at my company. It's called 5,000 by 2025 that we want to help get 5,000 shows produced by 2025. Uh, and that's based on the simple theory that I have that I think the world is a better place if there's more theater in it. So everything we do, blogging, podcasting, all the stuff, the membership site is all about trying to help people get their shows produced. Uh, and a bunch of writers said to me, like, you know, this festival, the Midtown International Festival was one that was operating for a number of years and uh, they retired. Uh, and then there's been just a few others that have dropped away. And I was like, well, I bet if we launch a new festival, writers would want to be a part of it. And we just said we need a new festival. And just like the board game or just like producing Spring Awakening, I was like, OK, let's just do it. And it's not brain surgery. No one's going to live or die by what we do. So we're doing it and we're figuring it out as we go. Or as to quote one of my favorite entrepreneurial phrases, we're building the plane as we fly it. <laughs> feel like that's most theater. <laughs> that was actually going to be one of our questions because we are noticing on your website, you have, I think there's like five or six people listed uh, as part of the festival under staff. And we're like, you're doing 23 shows in three weeks. We know there's about a million people probably working with you. So are you just, how are you making that work? Well, we're figuring it out as we go. I mean, we were very careful in choosing the shows, not only based on quality shows and a real diverse type of entertainment, as well as diversity in the authors and, uh, and from all over. We have shows coming from Australia. We have shows coming from Ireland, like, we really wanted a great cross-section of experiences. That's why it's called Rave. Um, there's an immersive ah. show. There's a show by a teenager. There's an all-female tap show. Like, It's a real unique festival. That's where I think theater is going. It's no longer just going to be defined by you know, a proscenium ah. stage. So, but we also chose people that we were that are the type of people that we really that get shit done, to be honest. I mean, we, I have this phrase. I call them entrepreneurs. Uh, and we look for people that not only are very artistic and creative, but also can come up with an idea and execute it and can deliver. And those are the type of people we chose because we knew they'll work really hard to get their shows done at a very high level. So are all the shows shows that have been produced before or are some of them brand new pieces that have never seen or that an audience has never seen before? Oh, most of them have not been seen before oh really so, yeah there's been a couple that have been popped that have popped around i mean the show from australia or the all-female tap female tap show they, they've never been seen in the u.s uh but they've been working on that there's a great show it's called big shot the musical that's from ireland uh that that show has been done a couple times once in the in hollywood and once in ireland and now it's making their new york premiere but um no the listen the show by the teenager. Yeah, that uh, one sounds very interesting. Yeah, this I've I've actually known this guy, um, Josh Turchin, for a while, uh, and I've been following him because I think he's a real uh, significant talent. Um, he he wrote this for the festival in a very title of show kind of way, and I think that's it's awesome. It's called the perfect fit. And that one's about a a child. Is it about a child star who's kind of growing out of being a child star? Did he? write it based on actual experience or life lessons or is just just something that he's observed in others well i i think you'd have to we have to see the, the show and yeah. himself, uh, <laughs> i think I'm that begin to tell him where, but certainly it looks like a write what you know type of piece which is yeah. the smartest thing that you know writers can do especially at such a young age uh so maybe it's him maybe it's again he's he's been in a bunch of broadway shows and things so he's the perfect person to write about this 
How early did you, how long did it take you uh, from the beginning till now? Your shows start going up next week uh, on, what is it, August 9th. How long have you been working on this? How long did it take you to figure out 23 scripts and then build teams for all 23 productions? So when, if you were doing a festival next year at this time, when would you start working on it? Like a year year. ago. (laughs) Yeah, about two years, I'd say, to get all that done. Yeah, so we started working on this on... We we greenlit that we were doing it on Saturday, March 2nd, 2019. Whoa. Wow. So less than about four and a half months ago. And two things I do want to say about that is that I actually, I think just about anything can get accomplished in whatever time period you have. Um, and then there's something, there's something to be said for a deadline. Uh, True. And because when you think about things too long, you can often get muddy. The process can get muddy. Uh, and we just said, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do this this summer and we're just going to, we're going to go for it. And what do we need to do to get it accomplished in this period of time? So we did. Um, and part of this is, again, the producer in me, like I'm, I'm, you know, producers actually what a lot of people don't realize is that producers don't make any money until the show get produced, gets produced. And really and really, they don't make any money until the shows recoup their investment. So mm-hmm. as a Broadway producer, I don't start getting paid until that thing is on Broadway. So if it's in development for five years, there's nothing coming my way. So my, you mentioned my family. So how do I, you know, feed the, the, you know, string spinach or whatever I'm giving my kid these days to, uh, (laughs) how do I give, how do I feed her in that time? So part of my process trying to speed up the development and maintain the quality. Also, these authors want it now. They want to be seen now and they deserve to be seen. I read so many scripts and hear so many, so much music. And I'm like, man, this stuff is good. It deserves to be seen. So we said, let's give them what we, they want. Let's do it fast. And, and we're doing it. And it won't be perfect. It won't be perfect. We'll learn. I promise you, we do this next year. It'll be better. And, you know, if you attend, maybe one night we'll go up late or something will happen. But we'll still have 23 shows get done. And that, I think, is a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. I think we... I. I'm, I just finished my second season at a new festival and ours was a little bit the same thing. Like we all wish we had more time to put it together, but the way the pieces all fell, all of a sudden we had like eight months to put together this huge festival. Um, and we're in our second, we just finished our second season, which was much better. And we're like, yeah, we wish we would have had more time, but we made it work and we got awesome reviews in this amount of time. So, you know, why make it wait longer? Why not just continue to try to do it and go for it, which is amazing. That's right. That's right. Part of part of being an entrepreneur is just knowing when to launch. Yeah. And knowing when to put it out there. And um, because I, I work with a lot of writers and coach a lot of writers and do a lot of dramaturgical work with them. And uh, one of the biggest lessons I have to teach is you can't keep rewriting re- your script for years and years. Mm. You, plays and musicals were not meant to be read. They were meant to be seen and heard. Mm-hmm. And they actually don't achieve the next level of development until an audience chimes in. Like, I don't believe a play is a play if it just exists on paper. I agree with that. You said something 
I should take notes during these, but I get so excited just listening to people talk. See, that's um, why I don't talk as much. I'm trying to take notes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's what it was. How did you, because I think um, on the Broadway World press release that you got hundreds of submissions for the festival, what were you, was your criteria for narrowing everything down? Stacey and I really love the fact that you have um, quite a few female playwrights and playwrights of color and international. So what was kind of the, the criteria that made you choose these 23 pieces over everything else? Well, it's really, we look for three things. Of course, we look for quality. We look for diversity, gender diversity, racial diversity. And also we looked for a diversity in the types of shows that we were present that were being presented. So we didn't mm-hmm. want 20 plays that took place only on a proscenium stage in a living room, right? We wanted mm-hmm. a real cross-section of all the amazing theater that's out there in the world. You know, that's the, the, the amazing thing about what's happening with the theater right now is that it's no longer just existing in one type of space. And it mm-hmm. no longer means one thing. The structure is getting all messed up where you do it. It can be in a sidewalk. It could be at, you know, a Starbucks on the corner. That can be a place to have theater. And Yeah, the immersive I, theater is growing a lot. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that's only going to continue. And we wanted to say, we want to show you a diverse type of experience by a diverse type of people, but that has a very high quality. And that's what we think we've come up with with these shows. The immersive part is one of my favorite parts. It's Uh, We talk about it often on the podcast because I work in opera, but I do a lot of non-traditional opera and new opera. And my background is doing, making art in non-traditional venues. So it's very rare these days that I actually work in a proscenium setting. You know, I've done shows at abandoned warehouses or cruise ship terminals or parks or um, parking garages just all over the place and it's one of my most exciting things to do and so I love the fact that you have shows in this festival that are immersive or that are encouraging audience members to get up and walk around and I think there's a detective one um, near town yeah where it says that they're encouraging people to get up and follow these detectives and you can kind of create your own story depending on which detective you follow or or who you go with when which I just think is so much more exciting than I mean I love sitting in one space and like experiencing it with everybody to but to be able to create your own experience by following these characters around and you know kind of creating your own art with the playwright and with the the performers on stage just sounds so amazing and I think that's one of the shows being produced opening weekend so I'm I'm in town opening weekend so I'm already making a list of the shows that I want to see in the three days that I'm home before I go off to my next gig and that's well definitely on the top of my list get your tickets quickly because that one is because it's so unique and different is selling yeah very, it's very selling well. out so well that's um, awesome yeah that's listen that's not only an immersive show it's it's from an immersive theater company these things exist now called witness and people may know or maybe they don't you know my first show that i produced off broadway was a show called the awesome 80s prom which mm-hmm. actually is now done all over the country and in high schools which is blowing my mind <laughs> the fastest growing high school theater theater productions because it's interactive and quote unquote immersive and that's what I think new audiences want. Uh, and yeah, like you know, one of the one of the greatest things. So for theater makers today, so if anyone out there that has ideas about to do a show or something, it used to be like producing a show is so expensive because and getting a theater is so expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I really relate to what's happening in our world right now to what 
happened in the film world. So making a film used to be exceptionally expensive. You had to actually buy a camera that shot on film and have the film developed and then edit this film. And then all of a sudden, you could make a movie on your phone. And now when people come to me and say, I can't, oh, I have an idea for a show, but I can't do it because I can't afford it because I can't pay the rent of the theater. And I was like, I said, that that is narrow-minded thinking. Because the amazing thing is you could do it in a parking lot. In a you could do it wherever, yeah. Building. You could do it whatever you want. Yeah. And actually, you'll get more attention for your show if you do it because it's still so unique. So you don't, you don't need what you used to need to put on a show these days. And that's very exciting. That is very exciting. So I'm going to talk more about the your uniqueness in marketing. You have broken ground in so many new things, doing live streaming on Broadway shows, which hasn't been done before. You have seats in houses where people can tweet during the show. Is that part of just get the word out there to as many people as possible? New ideas come, so you try them? Yeah, listen, we, again, I... I have been very fortunate that a lot of the ideas included some of the crazier ones have gotten a lot of attention on Broadway, you know, for my, an off Broadway, my second off Broadway show, my first time I did a promotion where I let virgins get in free to the first performance. And I had a human lie detector, a mentalist, uh, a <laughs> PhD in nonverbal communication, being able to tell if the people were lying uh, at the box office line. That got on the homepage of CNN. Jay Leno, Leno did a joke about it. Like that thing went all over. Um, and I've done a lot of things like that from dial testing somewhere in time to crowdfunding Godspell to, uh, you know, there was a, a town, Sayreville, New Jersey was a producer on getting the band back together. So I do lots of stuff again, because I'm constantly trying to come up with ways to draw attention to my show without placing full page ads in the New York times, because that's so expensive and that's what (laughs) everyone else does. Mm -hmm. And that's not how you separate yourself. I'm trying to come up with. You know, I think the shows that that sell the best, and I could do a whole you know book on this, uh, that are the ones that are most unique at that time. And I do the same thing with my marketing. Look, Hamilton is exceptionally unique. Book of Mormon, when it was came out, exceptionally unique. We had never heard language like that on a Broadway stage. Avenue Q, like Wicked, like these are very very unique shows, and they stand out. And what stands out sells. What I love about the crowdfunding that you did for Godspell is kind of, I kind of relate it to what you're doing with the Rave Festival, where you're taking pieces that wouldn't normally be produced or that are not produced for whatever reason, because a 12-year-old wrote it or because a person of color wrote it, and they're just not in mainstream yet. But you did that, you created an opportunity for people to like be a producer on Godspell that are normal people that don't have, you know, a hundred thousand dollars to donate to a project, but can donate a thousand dollars. And I have many friends that, that contributed to it. And they were so proud of the fact that they helped produce this Broadway show. And I just think that's so awesome because it just pulls so many more people in and gives everybody this opportunity to be a part of something that they're so proud of and they're so excited about, and they feel like they can contribute in some kind of way. So I think that's really, really cool. uh, I appreciate that. And that, that was exactly the, the idea it was to democratize the production process. It was trying to get more people involved because I knew more people, like so many people are passionate about the theater, but they may mm-hmm. not be able to write a six-figure check. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and getting more people involved is just good for the show. It's good for the theater. And that's, listen, my whole mission is to raise the curtain on 
on the Broadway experience too long. We've been this mysterious organization that didn't have a lot of transparency. And I, through my blog, through my podcast, like all the things that I do is trying to say like, hey, come on in and learn. Right. Because when you learn and when you experience it from the inside, you actually grow more passionate about it. And then mm-hmm. for me, again, that just means I believe the theater will be even stronger 10, 20, 100 years from now. That's exactly how we feel about backstage. You know, so many people just it's such a mysterious area to them and they don't understand what it is. And the more you learn and the more you know about what it takes to put on an entire production and even us right now learning about what it means to be a producer, it just makes you appreciate everything that we're doing even more. I just spent my whole summer learning about period orchestras, which, you know, I never thought would be a thing for me. And now I just like love all these other people more and what they do even more than I did beforehand because knowledge is power. Yeah, listen, the podcast I, the, that I started was the same thing. I've been able to talk to some of, you know, some serious Broadway A-listers and just sit and listen and go like, oh, my God, I, I'm learning so much from these people. Yeah. And I sat down with them before. Yeah, exactly. How did exactly. I not know these things before? It's actually what's really cool about it is I recently did one that hasn't aired yet with a lawyer that I've negotiated with against many times. And we've gone to, quote unquote, blows. And all of a sudden, we were sitting in a room talking about why we both got involved in the theater. And I will tell you 1,000%, the next time we have a negotiation, it'll be much better for both of us. (laughs) So this is what it's about. It's about getting people in a room and reminding us all that we all got in it for the same reason, because we love the freaking theater. uh, And we should all do everything we can to get more of it made. That's so awesome. And awesome that you can sit down with somebody that you've been in court with and be able to have a conversation with them yeah we've never actually gone to court thank god but oh okay been, but, <laughs> but you've gone through some of, of the yeah, yeah for sure which is still as stressful <laughs> one of the things that i love is i work at east west players now which does asian american theater and you have put a number of asian american shows on broadway and off broadway which 15 20 years ago just never would happen uh do you do those shows be and put them on Broadway or try to get them to Broadway because you're trying to do all the diversity, like Allegiance or Chinglish? I am, I am attracted to shows that are unique, number one, and two, that open the doors on a world that we don't hear a lot about but are curious about. And that's why I think I've done a lot of shows that have uh, a lot of, you know, Godspell was a very diverse company. Obviously, I just did Once in this Island. I'm prepping a revival of The Great White Hope right now. Uh, so I've done a lot of shows. And, you know, I, I look back and I, I, I am proud that my company and my co-producer and the other co-producers that have joined me have presented all these different color, these presented all these different opportunities for people of color. Uh, but it wasn't like a specific choice. It was just like, these are great stories tell these great stories and and again what's unique is these stories and this is what i think what a lot of people should learn from is these stories aren't heard as much as others mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's what i think it's about like I, you know i just talked about writing what you know but i wrote this other blog about how part of my mission is to produce what i don't know because when i produce what i don't know i step out of my comfort zone and when i do that I end up learning so much in the process. Like one of the shows I'm most proud of was the Deaf West Spring Awakening, which I moved to Broadway after seeing it uh, in California. And I had never, you know, it was filled with a company that was 
hearing actors and deaf actors. And I had never had a conversation with a deaf person before. And that was challenging for me and awkward at first and uncomfortable for me. And slow, but I forced myself to do this and experience it. God, these folks opened me up to a whole new world that I'm so proud to know just a little bit more about today than I did before I produced it and learn about it. And that has changed my life personally and professionally and made me look at all types of people in a different way. And that's what, you know, I, I urge all my fellow producers out there to do something that they don't know. Step outside their comfort zone of the types of shows they normally produce so you can learn about a different world. We're all in the same world. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, that's I the first show I did with East West Players was actually Allegiance. And I I'd heard about Allegiance when it was in San Diego and we didn't we couldn't get down to San Diego to see it. And then we heard it went to Broadway, and so my husband and I booked tickets out to Broadway to see it, and I think you guys closed like two weeks before our flight out there. So mm. I was like, dang it, missed it again. And so when East West Players called me and said, hey, we're doing Allegiance, we're looking for a TD, I was like, yes. I don't know when it is or anything, but I, I've been wanting to be a part of the show or at least see the show for so long um, that I immediately said yes, and now, now I work at East West Players. But it's just such a different... You hear about World War II and we sent the Japanese to internment camps, but to actually hear what their side of the story was and even the battles within the Japanese community on some wanted to join the war effort and some wanted to not join the war effort and what that caused. like It, it was just so fascinating, a part of history that they don't teach in school that is so important, I think, that we talk about and we share with people. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so that's super exciting and I love that uh, you are pushing a lot of those things. Uh, one of the podcasts that I absolutely loved was one with Julia Jordan, and she talked about the lilies um, and how they've done research and stuff on playwrights or even people who have written shows who are female versus male, people of color versus um, white people even in the show, if it's male-centric or if it's female-centric, whether it's being produced or not. So I love that you're pushing more towards <laughs> not just white males producing, starring, writing, and all that. Yeah, it's been a it's been a real learning process for me. And, you know, we all have our natural predispositions to do things based on what we are surrounded by, right? That's the thing. I hang out with mo with mostly guys, right? So there's just a natural thing that happens. I am a male. So that it, it, like there's just this natural thing that happens and unless you stop yourself and go, wait a minute, let me make sure I'm considering everyone. That's something that Lynn Aarons taught me when I was doing my podcast. Lynn Aarons, who wrote Once on this Island, I was talking to her about like, what can we do? I said, Lynn, give me one thing that we can, you can tell me and then I can tell all my listeners on what we can do to make gender parity better. And she said, Ken, let me ask you a question. How many men have you had on your podcast and how many women? And I said, I don't know. And she said, well, you should. She said, before you reach out to your next guest, you should say, is there a woman as well? And we actually did the numbers. I ran the numbers. And there was a overweight towards male guests and female. It wasn't that significant, but there was that. And I was like, wow. And she taught me in that very specific thing as an employer, as someone who's looking at writers and also uh, stage managers, everything to say is just ask the question, um, are we seeing enough people for this from a diverse group? 
at the end of the day, you know, quality and qualifications and excellence has to win out in a lot of these cases. But the fact is, we need to make sure we're considering people from all walks of life. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm proud to say we made some immediate um, changes. And I constantly, you know, I have some great millennial female staff members that I've hired on purpose to be like, hey, I want you to speak up for who you are and challenge and recommend people and that I may not know. And it's been it's been great. And again, challenging, uncomfortable at times, but a great learning experience. And I know I'm going to produce better art for it. Uh, that's a discussion that's come up the last few years at Opera America, just in the opera world, but points out the fact that upper level companies, the the ones with the biggest budgets are almost all run by men. And they talk about including females and how females are just as important. But then when you look at their staff, it's all men. And when you actually go and you ask them the question specifically, it's something that they've never actually thought about. And then once you, you know, spend 10 minutes talking to them and get them to just think about it, it's amazing how much that makes a difference. Like you said, you just, somebody has to point it out to you in order for you to stop and think and be like, oh, you're right. I do yeah. only work with all females or you're right. I have only hired everybody of my ethnicity because that's what I know. So why am I doing that? And then it just makes you see that you don't have to do that or, you know, that you are you are going one way and that you could go multiple ways. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember, especially in the arts organization, arts organizations as opposed to other ones and especially the theater the people that are running the theater are usually pretty open-minded people <laughs> based on yeah. they're usually pretty liberal people right so it's i don't believe that there is a a strong like uh, i think most people are really open except they're just naive and are like you just said they're just not realizing what they're doing as opposed to some other industries where i feel like you know what? They need to be taken down. Right. They're uh, purposely ours, doing these things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> ours, I just don't think it's the case. So, you know, it's just a question. This is a generalization, but it's it's just a question of like reminding and teaching people like, hey, we need to think about this instead of mm-hmm. getting angry and, and, and screaming about it. Because I think most people will listen. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. I, I haven't met a single person in our field that once pointed out to them who has disagreed with us. You know, it's just pointing out the facts. And I've had people point out facts to me too, that when I hire people, when I hire stage managers, nine times out of 10, I'll hire females as opposed to males. And it was something that I confronted myself with in my last round of hiring, be like, why am I only hiring females? Like, what is it that's forcing me to do this? And I forced myself to step out of my comfort zone and hire somebody that I normally wouldn't have hired. And he was one of my best decisions ever. And I want to keep him forever. So it is a little uncomfortable at times, but I think it's necessary. Agreed. I also think that's the great thing about theater and probably run one reason a lot of us are here is it's just so accepting. In in high school, we were in choir and we felt like it was an all-female choir and there was so much just nagging and, and background pettiness. stuff, pettiness and all. And we got into theater and they weren't like that. Everyone was friendly and open and accepting and we didn't care what color you were or who you were dating or who you took to prom or anything like that. Um, And that continued through college and even now. Like, I feel like theater is just very accepting of a lot of people. So I think it's great that we're actually showing that in what we present and not just the way we work backstage. I also agree. (laughs) Well said, well said. Uh, Jumping back to the Rave Theater Festival... 
one of the questions I had was looking at you have, I think, two theaters that you're doing things in, but you're doing like four to six shows a day. Are these what can people expect when they come to see a show? Is it a fully produced show? Is it more a staged reading? Because you have musicals and comedy and drama and things that are quite tap varied. Dance. Yeah, tap dance. It can't be the yeah, same set with the you're same lights. See full productions, but there it's a festival. You know, you're not going to see the type of physical production associated with Moulin Rouge that opened last night on Broadway. So you're, you're going to see a festival production just like you would see at any fringe festival. The shows share the space. They have to load in and load out very quickly between shows and put it back up later. Um, but you're going to see, you know, I think theater in its the coolest state in its incubation period and its beginning period, embryonic stage. Um, where who knows what could come out of it. I mean, that's what's exciting. Uh, I I found a writer at the New York International Fringe Festival that helped take Ultra Boys, one of my first shows that I produced, to another level and make it the success that it is today. Those writers are going to be at Rave. They're going to be there. Whether it's their, this show that you see that becomes the next You're in Town or whatever it is, mm-hmm. I guarantee you, 10 years from now, there are going to be writers that you know that and actors that you know where they will have been seen at rave. Yeah, they have to start somewhere. Or not start, but like get their name, get their name out there, constantly marking themselves. That's right. That's right. Getting getting stuff done, putting yourself out there, putting yourself up, that's when things happen. And I think you're forced to be more creative in a sense when you do have to load in a show present it and load out in one day you're forced kind of like what you're saying you know not just in proscenium and producing in other locations but you're forced to have this kind of creativity that is not always the case when you're in a traditional sense and you have all these weeks to do things but again that's the kind of producing that or the kind of productions that i like to do so i just find them much more exciting the the very this uber talented director and actor joe montello uh, he was on my podcast and he said after going through a difficult period on Broadway, he went back to his roots and started doing really small shows with no budgets to find the magic again. Uh, and that yeah. was a big part of his, his uh, turning point, he said, in his career. Uh, and yeah, it forces you to be creative. I think that's why I, I enjoy the small shows because it's much more collaborative than if you're at or if I were to work at the Met where there's, you know, a hundred people doing exactly what I do, um, it's much more compartmentalized, but I love the small stuff. Yeah, as do I. It's how I started my career and, and I'll, and I'll always like the small stuff. <laughs> uh, you do 5 million different things. What do you do to, to stay excited Relax. about it? Yeah, to relax and not burn out constantly working all the time. Well, I don't consider it work, you know. Uh, my very cheesy answer to it is people say, oh, Ken, you, you're a workaholic. And I say, I'm a loveaholic. Because, now you just uh, start using that. Yeah. That's what I do. I mean, so it's not work. Um, that said, I make sure I get some time with my family, my, my 16-month-old daughter, uh, and which is a can be a whole other type of stress but uh, it's amazing <laughs> so true. hearing someone say daddy 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 when you walk in the door uh, i play golf which is actually relaxes me and actually gears me up to work more because it cleanses my mind 
Um, but yeah, I love what I do. I'm, I'm lucky. I wake up every morning. I get to work in a, in a business that I would work in, even if they were still paying me with subway tokens and lunch, like they did when I started my career. (laughs) The fact that I can actually support my family, uh, doing what I do is one of the greatest blessings I think anyone could ask for. Is your partner in theater? Uh, my wife is an actress. Yes, she uh, she's taking care of our daughter right now and uh, still acting on the side as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so thankfully she understands it. And the reason we're married is because she understands uh, how much I love what I do and, and have to pursue that passionately. And I think she likes that passion in me as well. Yeah, I think that's... I. Both of us, both Cindy and I went outside the theater world to get married because I was like, I know my schedule. I don't want to have to try to figure out his schedule to go with my schedule. <laughs> I want a steady job person. <laughs> yeah, there takes a type of understanding there uh, in, order to, in order to pull off a relationship with someone in this business. Uh, we always have one final question to ask but Stacy tells me you have one final question that you always ask on your podcast uh I don't remember exactly what it is wait, wait, I, Stacey- think I, I think I have it down pretty well because I've been binge listening to your podcast okay uh let's see imagine the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you <laughs> to thank you for all your contributions to theater and the Broadway world and he's going to grant you one wish. If you could change one thing about Broadway, something that drives you crazy, that makes you want to flip over tables, what would that one thing be? You know, in all the interviews I've done, no one's ever actually flipped that question. <laughs> yes! I was like, I haven't listened to all of the podcasts. I don't know if he's answered this question. <laughs> and idiot me, I don't think I've ever actually thought what I would say in this to this answer. I, 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 you know... The answer changes for me on a day-to-day basis because something drives me crazy uh, every day. It's usually something that's obstructionist to getting something done, right? So, because I just like to see theater happen, and when someone gets in the way of that, like for no reason other than money or because it's always been done that way, yeah, yeah, like least favorite answer. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It's. you know, when, when someone says to me, oh, we're not going to do that because that's the way it's been done, that drives me crazy. Uh, the other thing I will tell you that Broadway is in a really significant boom time right now. We're grossing more than we ever have before. The theaters are full. Hollywood's involved. Like, it's it's amazing. It's global now. But the, the thing that hasn't changed that it's is our success rate, that one out of five or one out of four, I like to think, shows make their money back. And as Broadway has become a much more successful place, you would think that we'd also have a higher degree of profitability. Uh, and that hasn't happened. Uh, it, I think it should be closer to 30 or 33%. It shouldn't be a very, like a riskless uh, yeah. platform because then we'd have very cookie cutter, boring production. But um, we should have been able to reduce that risk a little bit as Broadway has been. And we haven't, and that's that's. I would change that. Do you think it's because things are costing more money? Actors, tech, light, sound, space, or the models just not balanced itself out. The, the things are more expensive, and there hasn't been the model hasn't changed enough as it should, uh, and 
you know, the mega hits make more money, but there isn't room for a middle of the road show, a show that audiences love, that critics liked maybe, um, and but that isn't based on a huge brand. Uh, mm-hmm. There isn't a lot of room for that. There's not a lot of original musicals on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I we suffered that with getting the band back together. Audiences, audiences love that show. We did a survey. Ninety-eight percent of them went crazy for it in the survey. Uh, but it's original. It wasn't based on any source material. No one knew what the heck it was. Uh, it right. wasn't Pretty Woman. It wasn't Mean Girls. It wasn't one of these things. And that's very hard to get someone to choose one of those instead of the other when the tickets cost 150 bucks. Right. Um, if you're new, if you're coming to town or if you can only choose to see one show this year, you're probably going to choose a show that you've heard about or yeah. you know, that you know the storyline to or you know a performer in. You're yeah, not going to choose a brand new piece. There's decades and decades of actual statistical advertising research to prove the thesis that you just stated. That's what happens. They will always choose the devil they know in mm-hmm. a cluttered environment. Uh, and that goes for soft drinks. Imagine if you saw Coke and some cola product. Even if the cola product was a dime less, you'd go with Coke. Because mm-hmm. so, it's what you know. Yeah. It's what you know. So I, I wish that were a little different because I think there's a lot of stuff that a lot of people would really, really love if they had that opportunity to see. Yeah, that's. I didn't think about it like on Coke. That's one thing when I was in Japan, they didn't have, their vending machines didn't have Coke, Diet Coke, Sprite, Dr. Pepper. They had like 15 other drinks that I'd never heard of before. And every vending machine was completely different. And I was just blown away by the amount of drinks (laughs) they had. Where you think over here, it's like, if you want a soft drink, it's Coke or or Pepsi. That's, That's all we offer. So I'll challenge your listeners right now. The next time you go to New York, do me a favor. See two shows, at least two shows. See the one that you really want to see, that you know everything about, that you know the lyrics, that you know the brand, that won the Tony, that whatever it is. And then for the second show, see something you've never heard of before. I guarantee you, it could be the greatest surprise of your life. You'll discover something. And even if you don't, you'll learn something for sure. The difference will, will mean a lot. And it'll be a lot to those writers and creators. The people that are listening to this podcast right now love the theater. And I imagine that right. they want more theater and more new writers and more originality. Well, how you get that is you support those new people at the same time. And we just so happen to have a theater festival starting on August 9th that does just that. So <laughs> that you can go see out. it. It's funny because my husband literally asked me two hours ago. He said, do you want to go see a Broadway show tomorrow night? What do you want to see? And I was like, I don't know. I don't even... I'm not sure, but now I want to go and look them up and be like, I want to see the show that I know nothing about. Awesome. Do I think that's what I'm going to have to. Theaterfestival.com. Yeah. We've got 23. <laughs> <laughs> I have three days of the festival before I go off to Philadelphia. So I'm going to have to like book all three of those days with uh, as many tickets as I can. Yeah. Awesome. And then call me because I can't fly out to New York right now. Right. <laughs> I'll just text you. Perfect. I'll sit in the seats and tell you what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, what is the difference? I guess there's three categories. I'm kind of narrowing it down to three categories. There's Broadway, there's off-Broadway, and then there's the rest of us working not in Broadway. What's the difference between Broadway and off-Broadway? What makes that distinction? It's very specific technical difference. Uh, anything over 499 seats is Broadway in a specific geographic region, which is the Times Square area, except for Lincoln Center. Uh, Off-Broadway is 100 seats to 499, and off-off is anything below 100. 
So it's just almost solely based on location and seat number. Yeah, that's it. Oh, I always thought it was something really big. <laughs> I mean, that's mm-hmm. important, but... Uh, Broadway, and I don't know if it's off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway, is a for-profit industry. Most of us outside of Broadway work in the nonprofit theater world. Why do you... Why... <laughs> Why is that? How do you guys do shows without constant donations and grants and everything? Well, because we have a... There is enough tourist population to support it on an ongoing basis. So the commercial theater, it's always existed that way. So there's a tradition for 100 years, 100 plus years. Uh, So that tradition is there. But, you know, these types of industries exist in cities where there is a turnover population. Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Paris, etc., you know, we can support it, you know, in a lot of places, there just isn't that type of audience to keep coming. It's why, in, uh, I don't know, for Lauderdale, Florida, they'll do a tour of the show that will only play a week or two at a time because that's all the population that can support it. That makes you know, really... 65, 65% of the audience that goes to see Broadway shows are from out of town. We're like the Empire State Building. They want to see something when they're here. Yeah, I never I thought think... it that way. Yeah. I always wondered why you guys were one way and we were a different way. And I'm like, I don't know how they last because mm-hmm. we do like half of our income or try to get half of our income from donations. And you guys don't do donations. So impressive. Well, it's just different. You, you could do the same thing, but you'd have a very different model. I mean, it's, it's just different. We like to, and there are nonprofit theater companies on Broadway. Uh, we just like to do it differently. We're not looking, you know, our shows are not institutions they're individual shows they last as long as they last and then we do another one that's true usually like in east west players we plan a season each show we know is going to run so many nights for so many weeks and then it that's it it's done whether it's a hit or not that's how long it goes whereas that's right broadway you guys don't really have an end date necessarily that's right Uh, that must be fun for scheduling and budgeting (laughs) Mm Okay, our last question, since we've done your last question back on you, uh, ours doesn't necessarily have to do with the theater, but we always ask if you have any twin stories. Since we're twins, we find it entertaining to hear about other twins because we didn't know any other twins growing up. So you got any fun and exciting twin stories? The only twin story I have is uh, related to theater. Of course, um, we all know the musical Sideshow um, mm-hmm. about the Siamese twins, uh, and it turns so happen. It just turns out that my great grandfather, who was a producer, a publisher, a lyricist for theater and, and Broadway, and did some film work, uh, he represented as a press agent. He represented the actual uh, Hilton sisters, Daisy and Violet. Wow! Um, I found in his scrapbook. So um, I just thought that was cool that uh, my great grandfather delbert essex davenport actually resented represented the sideshow twins that is pretty awesome yeah fun yeah especially since he was also in theater like no one in our family is in theater so you got a great grandfather in theater who represented twins in theater that they then made a theater show about so much that's right that is excellent okay i think i think i saw that show did that show play at the getty out in california Maybe that was it may have. I'm not sure where it played in California. It's been done all over. Yeah, I'm sure it's it's done regularly. So yeah, I think I might have seen it there, but it might be something. It was years ago. Okay, 
Well, excellent. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We're definitely going to uh, put all this information on our Facebook and our Instagram and our website and have links to the festival. Everybody go see the festival. It's it's a very short run. It only runs for two weeks with different shows every night. So uh, pick and choose, but it's all laid out nicely on their website, which is uh, ravetheaterfestival.com. It'll also be able to link to it so everybody... You have no excuse. Even if you can't make it to New York, check out the shows. See if any of them look exciting. I've already read the descriptions for all of them, even though I can't make it out there. Uh, And book tickets now, apparently. Yeah, buy tickets now. Let's sell out the shows. Get people seeing stuff. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Is is there anything else we've we've missed in this? No. Listen, thank you for doing this podcast and helping to amplify the conversation about theater. Um, I think it's awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, thanks for the rave pitch. Do come see it. Support some new writers. And if you're interested, if you're a theater maker or interested in the business of Broadway, um, of course, I have my blog, Producer's Perspective, but I'm also on November 16th and 17th of this year, we're doing a big conference in New York City with hundreds of theater fans, theater makers, directors, producers, artists, people that want to be writers, uh, to listen to panels from Broadway A-listers, Tony Ward winners, Pulitzer Prize winners people behind the scenes it's our uh, producers perspective super conference we've done it this is our third year uh it's the most exciting thing i do every year and we just secured a very very exciting keynote speaker that i cannot talk about right now but uh, <laughs> it'll be worth it so go check it out if you love the theater and want to know more about the business of it you will have a blast at the super conference for sure so check oh, it out. oh yeah I, I do follow your uh i actually first learned about you because i was following your um uh blogs and posts and stuff i think tickets are on sale and people can can get those already right tickets are out yeah yeah they're they're out now and actually if you get them now they're cheaper than if you wait to the last second so do it it's it's worth it it's you know two days in new york city in the heart of broadway uh and you'll have a great time excellent we will definitely post that too so that people can follow and go to it and and another podcast to listen to because we love advertising other podcasts (laughs) great Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstalktheater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.